Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Vital Descent. I'm your host, as always, Patrick McFarlane. This one is episode 262. The show notes may be found at vitaldescent.com forward slash 262. And for the first time on the show, I have Samuel Urban. Sam, do you want to introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, sure thing. I'm a Samuel Urban, Illegitimate Scholar podcast, um, and I I do cultural anthropology, uh, social studies, stuff like that. I compare ancient cultures, problems of today, and uh, I did not bring my little elevator pitch, but what I talk about today will be what I talk about on the podcast. So if you like that, check out my show. Yeah, right on. And where can people find that just like right away? Oh, yeah. I mean, illegitimate scholar on any podcasting thing, as well as on YouTube, ill underscore scholar on Twitter. Um, But yeah, illegitimate scholar, all the first results will be different stuff from me. Okay. Yeah, right on. And so I, um, I think Kyle Matovic told me, well, you gotta, you gotta get this guy on your show because you were on biting the bullet. You're also a Marine Corps vet, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Then that's relevant for this. It usually isn't. Um, yeah, I'm a Marine Corps vet. I was a Pogue 2013 to 2017. Okay. All right. So, well, I, those guys, uh, over at biting the bullet, they're so much fucking fun, man. And (laughs) I heard, so I'll put a link in the show notes page to your appearance there. But I kind of wanted to talk about, um, you know, China, because I understand that's an area of your study, one of many areas. Um, but I think we'll, we can talk about that for a bit and then, you know, just anthropology more broadly, uh, because we were talking before we hit record, I have a little bit of experience there, but not a whole lot. But yeah. I, I think maybe to start off, like, um, you want to describe kind of your experience studying China? Yeah, definitely. I, I Can I say one thing about anthropology first? Sure, yeah, yeah. Like, anthropology is like, it's the study of humans. So, like, it's really, really simple stuff. And a lot of times, anthropology, like, you know, you get into the research side of it, it gets very complex and it gets very nuanced. But, like, that's professor shit. You don't really need to know that. Like, it, this stuff is not that complicated. Colleges overcomplicate it. They overcomplicate everything. It doesn't have to be like that. Like, you're a human. It's the study of humans. That's why I do my show. Because we're humans. And that's that's what it's about. Um, and, I, and, and this stuff, I just don't think it's as bad as people pretend it is at these hoity-toity universities. And that's why I'm illegitimate. But um, China, yeah. So China, I, with the biting the bullet guys, I did two and a half hours on China, just a overview of the history from ancient times to um, a, a big portion of it of the 19th century, setting up the 20th century and the you know the fall into communism, or maybe not the fall into communism, the rise into communism, depending on how you look at it, um, and their place in the world based on their history and how they how they might interact with the world based on their history and based on the 19th century and the West's place in that. And I think it's, for, for people like us, it's really hard to conceptualize what it might be to, moreover, be a part of a different culture, but something as alien to us as the Far East and trying to put yourself in a different worldview like that. I mean, the limited experience I have in these situations is that in undergrad, I did five months in Germany. And for me being in Wisconsin, like Germany is not a super foreign culture kind of, because I mean, there's so much carryover from what's at home. So it feels like it's at home, but it's a little bit different at the same time. But even then there's certain concepts that are impossible to understand. Like this concept of like things being lost in translation or I forget what the name for it is when there is a word in another language that is it Dunning Kruger? Like, no, it's not. I'm familiar with the concept you're talking about, but I don't, I don't know the name. The Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. It's like, yeah, there's a certain feeling that cannot translate that it's a novel conception in a different language that just, Mm -hmm. there is no translation at all. And, and this is like languages for one, in cultural anthropology, they're very important to a culture. Everybody, like, this is something that everybody's understood for hundreds of years. The language, the language goes, the culture is gone. And that's why nationalism in the 19th century sought to destroy these identities of places that had had different languages for a thousand years. I mean, Ireland was still mostly speaking Irish in 1850, but not today. Um, It's very low. And with the, the first thing you said about China, the, oh, right the conception. Okay. So Germany, like, yes, they're 
foreign and there are concepts that you really can't understand, but they're still Indo-European. And not only that, but they're Germanic in the root. Um, the United States is an Anglo diaspora country. And, you know, I'm not English by blood. I don't know if you are um, MacFarlane, probably not. Yeah. So I'm Celtic blood as well. And, you know, I'm not Anglo, but I my language is Anglo, which is 60 percent of it. And and we're related to Germans in a lot of other ways. If you even go to India, they're still rooted in an Indo-European country. The the Vedas, it's rooted in the same proto-Indo-European um, background. So that that's where everything came from. And, and that stuff matters. The roots of those things matter because they affect how you interact with the world. But then China is just, it's so much more different. So when you think about how different Germany is and then think about China, it's just, it's a completely different perspective. And this is a concept that's very central to cultural anthropology and everything that I do, it's, um, which is, excuse me, cultural relativism and judging a culture by the standards of their own rather than ours. And I think people miss how basic that really comes down to um, and how socially constructed ideas like something like race, like people mock the idea that race is socially constructed. But like, yes, while phenotypes exist, some people have dark skin, some people have lighter skin. The social conception of what that means is very, very malleable. And this is why we get into things in Afghanistan where you can't impose a nation state on Afghanistan. You can't impose Western ideas on China. It's just they just don't work. And I know I said a lot there, but I I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I but it's like when when you're trying to understand something that's so foreign and so difficult, especially for a Westerner to understand. I mean, is there one thing that comes to your mind about what Americans need to understand in order to really have even the most basic understanding of Chinese culture, the differences? Yeah. So I think the the first place to start would be identity. Um, and then there's a few things that come out from that. So when we think about identity in the United States, there's certain identities these are socially constructed identities that we view as foremost importance. And those are going to be things like race. Like people think it's very important if you're black, very important if you're white, whether they have a positive or negative perception, people generally view it as very important. And they view of, of that perception of race. They also have a per perspective on what the nation means, what your identity in relation to your region is, what within the race is like, how you treat members of other races in your own race. There's rules for that type of thing and how important those are. And in sexual orientation and things like that, whereas in China, it's like sexual orientation is like, no, the only country in Asia that allows gay marriage is Taiwan. Like it's not really on the table. And Americans don't even really understand that Chinese people do not view their race as Asian. That's an American centric concept. So that's the level of understanding Americans have of Chinese culture. They can't even understand that Chinese people think their race is Chinese because that's their conception of race. Even though even 150 years ago, our own conception of race was different. 300 years ago, it was different than it was 150 years ago. So, but I think that people deep down think that these social constructed ideas of race are more concrete than they really are. And these limit our understandings of other places because race is just the beginning. They're Chinese, but there's so many other details about them that makes their interaction with the world so much different, so much different from ours. And, and to compare it to, to Germany, too, I suppose, where Americans, yeah, our conception of it is just, well, they're German, right? Well, if you go back over, you know, a little over 100 years ago, there were all these different um, parts of Germany. And now they're, I, I don't know exactly what the name is, but it's like, Saxon-Anhalt and Baden-Württemberg and, and Saxony and all these different... Bavaria. Bavaria, you know, these, these places within Germany itself. And, and all the dialects are so different that you go over, you know, to, the, to a different valley or something in, in the dialect. You can't understand people in the pub. Even regular Germans can't. And I'm sure it's the same with, with Chinese people. As, I, I mean, of course, there's the Han Chinese and then the, the other different... Um, ethnicities, I don't even know if that's the right word to say. Um, well, I mean, it wouldn't specifically translate into uh, Chinese, but 
do, do you want me to talk on this? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Sorry, yeah, just, um, I, I wasn't sure if I interrupted you. Um, no, no. So the th another thing about this, I'm glad you brought this up. I wish I had the quote ready, but they view China as connected to the Han identity, right? So, like, their country is not a state like ours that, like, yes, they provide citizenship, I think full citizenship, mostly to their minorities, of which about 10% of their population is minorities. But when we have minorities in America, it's because of immigrants or Native Americans, which is 2% of the population, or the about 10% of the U.S. population that is descended of freed um, African-American slaves that are descended from American slaves. Then there's African immigrants, uh, Western immigrants. But other than that, everyone's an immigrant. So it's like, it's not the same type of minority. Their minorities in China, for example, there are more Mongolians that live in China, ethnic Mongolians, than actually live in Mongolia. China not only views China as a country for Han Chinese people, the yellow race, the people of the dragon, in the words of Xi Jinping, but they view these other ethnicities who are living in their indigenous locations, more or less, as subjects of the Chinese empire rightfully, as they've always lived on the periphery of the empire. And many of these, and even more so, were tributary members of the empire in the past, whereas they paid towards, the, towards China, which, by the way, in, in other languages, in Korean, in Japanese, in Mongolic, I think even, and in Chinese, China is called the Middle Kingdom, and, and that, has, that has biblical, religious, and political significance. It's everything. Center of the universe is what China was and is and thinks of itself as its rightful place being. Yeah, that's and, and it's a concept, again, that's difficult to wrap your head around. But the, the, I guess the other part of it, too, is is recent and modern Chinese history, at least something that they would call, refer to as the century of humiliation. Um, and, and just within the concept of understanding the Taiwan question in particular, realizing the inner reaction or the interaction between the West and China in terms of in an imperialist kind of expansionist setting. Yeah, and it's also like the Taiwanese, like Taiwan, the real name of Taiwan is Republic of China. Like that's the remnants of the nationalists that lost the civil war to the communists and retreated to the island of Formosa, which traditionally had an Austronesian population. Like everybody from Polynesia is from that island, Formosa. Um, they spread out from there. So that's who used to live there is those people that looked more or less like Polynesian people, like Hawaiians. Um, so it's not really, it's, it's now it's full Chinese because they settler colonized them. But the, there's so much I, I can say on this, but yeah. the quick version is that, that the nationalist parts of the Korean war, the civil war between the communists and the nationalists and the, um, Chinese civil war between the communists and the nationalists there, the nationalists were heavily and legitimately connected either and, and slash or the Japanese Imperial military or, and the Japanese Imperial government or the United States, both of which were seen as colonial empires that were very rightfully so especially on the side of the Japanese, screwing with their country. And in the sense of the West, the West, the United States, the destabilization, it's very hard to argue that it's not due to the Western encroachment. It's sort of inevitable in the sense of technological increase, but Western encroachment into China and Japan and really, really just messed everything up and it set the stage for Japan's imperialism and tens of millions of deaths. And knowing that... And I, I brought this up before, but it must really irk China, and maybe legitimately so, um, that the United States is rearming Japan. Now, I, I, I know it's been pointed out to me that while Japan has been rearmed, I mean, it's just a formality in their constitution, but they've been rearming this whole time. But there's gigantic steps happening right now with that. Yeah, so it's it, at a certain level, it's a practicality thing, because if Japan has the defenses, then 
China won't invade, and that's the best situation for everybody, I think, at a certain point. Mm -hmm. You know, it's when everybody knows where everyone's at, if they're at an equal level or if there's one top dog, that's when everything is all good. Everything's stable. But the reason we're seeing a lot of this tumultuousness is because of the United States losing the level of superior um, external force uh, projection that we had following the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and that the Soviet Union, when it was strong, was another time of stability because, you know, everybody was like, OK, we don't know who's going to win. We're not going to kill everybody. But I, I think that Americans are probably a little bit too nervous about this. I, I think that China is our greatest threat. Don't get me wrong. Our greatest external threat. I think our bigger problems come from inside. But definitely our biggest external threat is China, not Russia. And I think that, number one, from a geopolitical standpoint, we should be um, – the United States should be uh, creating a, a, a rift between China and Russia, which occurs naturally because their empires butt up against each other and they fight for the same minority populations and uh, resource-rich areas that are on their frontiers. So they're naturally at odds with each other, and the United States is pushing them together rather than um, bringing them apart, rather than trying to separate them, and that is a bad move. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I think I got a little bit off. No, I think that's right, though. I mean, but to in in to get into, you know, kind of the opening to China and, and Kissinger going over to China and, and all that history that I've talked about on the show before. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have legitimate criticisms of Kissinger as a person, and they're legitimate. But at least at that point in time, it seemed like we had some kind of coherent strategy. Whereas right now it, it just does it seems misguided and uh, kind of shooting itself in the foot. Yeah, so I think Kissinger did a lot of bad things, obviously, but I got to give him praise for this one. I, I I don't know the super specifics of it, but I think generally the idea, and it was a good idea, was that number one, it's inevitable because this was the 1970s, right? So it had already been 20 years. The communists control the mainland. Like you got to give it to him eventually, and. He chose to do it sooner rather than later, although still it really was overdue anyway, so it was inevitable. But he connected, you know, when goods cross borders, soldiers won't. It, it's it's a practicality thing. It's a technology thing. Our, our economy became interconnected with theirs for better or worse. And that has negatives to it with a globally integrated complex systems economy, which can collapse and just destroy everything. But it has positives to it as well in the sense that there won't be – they're not going to go to war with each other over something unless it's an existential threat essentially because you just can't. You can't – China wouldn't survive without selling us their shit. Right. Yeah. And it's it's the decoupling that's uh, that's concerning at least you know, as, as Dave DeCamp and at Anti-War and I have talked about a bit. The, this move towards and all this fixation over computer chips and things like that, but but you know, I mean, you know that, of course, it's it's kind of like oil. But the United States would rather would first destroy the computer chips, it seems like, than to let the Chinese have it, and so it seems like it's not so much about securing our own supply of chips as it is denying China theirs. Well, I. Uh... It's, I think it's almost the same thing. It's better to get the chips, but like absolute matters less than relative. And if they're going to get the chips, if they're going to get the chips and more importantly, the assets, the chip factories, right? then like if that means that they now have 20% more chips and we lose 20% chips, sure. now they're 40% up on us. Sure. If we just destroy the ships, we're only 20% down and not them being 20% up, because it's the same thing. right? And uh, that could be disastrous for us, and it would just shoot China up. You know, I, I think China's not in as strong as a position as people think they are. I've gotten convinced of that over a little bit of time. I, I think that these, they went too extreme into capitalism, and they haven't had their growing pains, and I think they're probably due for their Great Depression. Or, I don't know what I'm talking about because China's way too complicated and I can't understand it. And they <laughs> yeah. go with different rules than us. I don't know. Sure. 50-50. Yeah. Flip a coin. I don't know. Yeah. And it, it really seems like, at least with the United States, there's a lot of very smart people who have been 
you know, saying for a long time that we're, our day of reckoning is coming, but it hasn't come yet. And it's like, um, over, underestimating the ability of the United States in the financial system to keep this whole thing going. Um, and so maybe it might be the same with China. I don't know. Yeah. So <laughs> the only thing I'm certain of is that China will eventually collapse. And then I'm also certain they'll come back together. The yeah. timetable of that, who knows, but it's completely untested territory. So it's all theory. And I would be willing to guess that it's going to happen in some completely different way than we think. But I think that capitalism just what goes up must go down applies to the market as well. And China being untested in that, unless there's something in their culture that gives them the ability to, like, fight the force of nature, essentially, which I, you know, if anybody's going to do it, it's going to be them, to be honest. But it's got to come soon because the simple, like, demographic shift things are out of balance and when things are out of balance that's when things happen it's like out of balance in the sense of the international relations like if they're a multipolar world if you have two big powers that are equal like i said before then you're all good if you have one big power that's on top then everything's all good because that guy's in charge but it's it's when you don't know and somebody thinks they can you know increase their country's prestige and get some more resources by just sacrificing 2 million poor people that he had to get rid of anyway, that, you know, it becomes, and while staying in power, that it becomes an issue. Do you, do you know if we've even begun to see the consequences of the one child policy? I mean, I'm sure we've begun to see it, but it seems like these kind of policies would be removed by a couple decades. Like you wouldn't really feel it hit until, those children that wouldn't have been born would have been turning 20, you know? Yeah. So yes, 100% in a number of different ways. And I probably can't accurately identify all of them, but the, one of these very specific things is that the real estate crisis in China, which is horrible, it's worse than Canada. It's like bad, bad. That is you can basically draw a direct line between that and the um, disproportionate amount of males in China. And that you can obviously directly tie to the one China policy. And it's also that like that one China policy that they had for decades, that affected a generation and more. It affected everybody for a generation, all generations for one generation, including one that grew up entirely in it that affected their culture in a way that you can't really bounce back from immediately because that's in those women. So now you can, it's, it doesn't just go back to what it was before. You now have to incentivize having kids and you're then adding another element of unnaturalness because you're, you're screwing with the system, the equilibrium, um, you're screwing with the, the equilibrium again, just like you did when you tried to limit the kids and there's unintended consequences for that always. It always seemed to me like, and I don't know if this cuts into anthrop anthropology more generally, but in relation to like biology, I remember an AP bio talking about, um, and even as a hunter too, you talk about the, the population of deer or what have you and the natural, you know, rise and fall. And, you know, when the deer population is high, you're going to get a wolf population that peaks after it, just for instance. But I always felt great you know, in the crisis over like the population boom, overpopulation, that issue entirely, I never really worried about it because I mean, mankind is just a, a creature of the animal kingdom in some ways. And it just seems to me like, well, if we're naturally approaching the carrying capacity of a given area, then it would naturally decrease and we don't need, you know, it's like the market for people in a way. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I think the reason I, I used to think that as well, but the, yeah. the reason that that's not the problem is that our current population is supported by our current levels of output and sure. it's supported by like the current logistics system of the world, which is based on a globalist safe world. But what we're heading towards is a multipolar world with multiple sections of power that are competing against each other. And that probably I think that this is an idea of Peter Zeehan, that this is going to lead to uh, more regionalism. And 
the populations that we have today are supported unnaturally in the sense that things like vaccines, mosquito nets are being brought in to places in Africa and infant mortality is going way down. All this modern medicine is going way down. But that stuff requires the maintenance of those things. And those things are not native to that area and they're not changing the culture and they're not creating these things in a way that works with the indigenous population of these areas. And you can't just impose a medical clinic with Western methods onto a people and then leave and expect them to continue doing it. If you don't like, like it takes generations to teach that to a culture. It, it, it means them adopting your culture and your methods in the world. So what I'm saying is that the current population that we have right now is based on current output, modern medicine, modern methods of farming, which by the way, are, destroying the topsoil of the entire world. And we have about 40 years left on this, unless they come up with something new, which I'm sure they will. But eventually it comes to a close because all of these interconnected forces, complex systems theory, eventually something is going to break in this system and the domino effect is going to be fatal. Um, and, and so once that international system breaks down, once modern medicine leaves Africa or Ecuador or you know, Myanmar, wherever it is, unless they can, you know, keep that going with their indigenous culture. And, you know, Singapore is going to be fine. Singapore will be fine, but Mozambique will not. And those places which are not going to be able to deal with that change, they're, they're, they're not going to be able to continue with their outside help. Like it's, it's in certain places, it's going to look like, you know, Britain trying to survive after the Romans left like the, the Romanized Britons trying to keep going there. And then other places, it's going to look like, you know, Z Nation or whatever. It's going to look like a zombie apocalypse. It's going to break down immediately. It's going to look like Afghanistan the second the American planes left. That type right. of thing. Right. Yeah. So in our DMs, you had mentioned that you studied under a professor who, who was a China expert. Yeah, yeah. So Alexis Dudden, she's specifically a professor on um, grievances for Japanese war crimes in World War II, namely in Korea. But she is a generalized East Asian specialist. Yeah. Okay. And did in which uh, which classes were you an understudy? Like, I mean, was she your supervising professor for some of your yeah, programs? Undergrad. Just Under undergrad. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. I have a three bachelor's degrees. Um, okay. Yeah, and I'll eventually go back and get a master's, but I just, you know, I I want to, I'd rather read stuff from Dissonant Review and Stone Age Herbalist than, like, I got enough of the college, I still read them, I still use them, but yeah. So Alexis Dutton, she's one of the experts on uh, Korea. She would, like, not, she would leave class sometimes if Kim Jong-un was launching missiles and she'd be in D.C. or, like, South Korea or something. She wouldn't tell us where she was until later. Um, and she... Sorry, what was the question? Well, I just was asking about her generally, but I yeah. It, but in terms of you know some of the things you learned from her, I mean, what what classes did you have her for, and what was kind of the focus? Yeah, so I had her. I did an independent study with her where I did a. I just read three or four books on China and did a report on China and neocolonialism in Africa. Um, I took a class with her that was my my undergrad thesis capstone. Uh, which was about apologizing for history. And that was that was concerning some of Japanese war crimes in World War II, but it was it was broader. It was about the difference between perpetrators and victims of crimes and how they can, you know, be there can be victims and perpetrators at the same time, like the Native Americans who had African slaves on the Trail of Tears or the South African black people who discriminate against the indigenous Khoisan people of South Africa. Um, but East Asia, the class I took with her was Korea. And this was a huge class. So there's this book, um, Korean War by Bruce Cummings, which I read in her class. And I don't, have you read this book? No, I haven't. So the, I, you really need to read this book. Everybody at the Libertarian Institute should be reading this book. Yeah. Um, typo read it. So this is a history of the Korean War and it talks about the Koreans uh, the leaders of the um, Korean military and the members of the Korean military, the South Korean military, what became it, and then the leaders, excuse me, of the North Korean military. And what happened in China mirrors this. I mentioned this before, but 
essentially in South Korea, you know, the the Japanese had been there in Korea for 50 years. So they were really entrenched. There were Koreans who were 40 years old who had adopted Japanese names and are officers in the Japanese Imperial Army in Korea. So the South Korean government is formed of collaborators against one of the most brutal imperial occupations in world history, where there was a million or more women taken as sex slaves for this imperial army. So, I mean, this was extraordinarily brutal. The scars are not healed. They still have they still have implications for global politics today. And this is one of the things that I think Trump did poorly was not trying to fix the relationships between South Korea and Japan and Taiwan to have all of them united because that's what they need against China. And I think he handled that poorly. But it's what happened is that they needed a bulwark against communism and they had this they had this structure already there. And it's basically the same thing with the Nazi scientists. They needed what they had to offer. But what this meant in Japan was that there was a little bit of the Nuremberg trials types thing, but very, very much fewer people were arrested and tried. Many of them were let go. And the South Korean military, they were wearing their Japanese imperial military uniforms at formation one night. They took off their Japanese military uniforms. And the next morning, if you're in the Marine Corps or the military, you know, switching camis, you switch from deserts to, to woodlands and vice versa. They took off their Japanese military uniforms after they left formation. And the next morning they showed up in American military uniforms. And that was the transition from this brutal occupation force into the military and the government of South Korea. Uh, you know, there were, there were change ups, but there was a, huge continuity in a way that did not happen in Germany at all. And that was meant as a bulwark against communism. But they also like it doesn't get talked about. But the South Koreans, the nationalists, they committed way more war crimes on the communists and way more war crimes on civilians. And the same is true of the Chinese nationalists. And everybody, when they look back, like, Yes, what happened afterwards, obviously it's better to be in South Korea. Like, you go 50 years forward, it's better to be in South Korea for almost anybody. Right. But at the time, none of that stuff had happened. And the if you look at it from an honest perspective, and in the Korean War, the guy like says it, it's, he's like, look, I'm not a commie, but just look at what happened. This is what actually happened. And it's it's what happened, and it's fucked up. Yeah, I can't remember. I was I was listening to um, there's a podcast that is like kind of a deep dive in each season that they go. It's a deep dive into a different topic. Right now they're on Afghanistan, but they their first season, I think, was the Korean War. And they were talking about, you know, how, how this thing happens where history starts on any given date. It's like, you know, for the invasion of, of Ukraine, it was February, I think, 22nd. What what was the date? I don't remember exactly. Oh, I don't remember. It was February yeah. 2022, but for the Korean War, history of the Korean War starts when the North invades. But they, they're talking about, you know, but there were all these attacks, these cross-border attacks that occurred before the North invaded the South. Right. Yeah. And there was guerrilla fighting before then. There was all these things. There were massacres. I mean, yeah, it was bad. And, and that same South Korean military, they... Like we talk about my lie in Vietnam. Yeah. But the worst atrocities were actually committed by the South Koreans. Yeah. Um, they killed thousands of Vietnamese civilians. They were it, it doesn't excuse the American war crimes, my lie and others. But, you know, when you look at it, you're like, oh, I never heard about this massacre of 2000 people. Yeah. That number might be from the Korean War, actually. But they were larger than my lie. Yeah. Too. And, and um, the, the whole concept. Sorry to. No, no, go. Well, the whole concept of the fact that a victim can also be an abuser, or, or I, I guess that's a specific a perpetrator, to, well. a perpetrator. That's specific to my domestic violence, like my, you know, what I deal with in the law. But um, yeah. the victim can also be the perpetrator. I mean, there's so many examples of that. It, it, it's like history, of course, is not black and white in that sense. I, I mean, I, I can think of a very important, um, a very prominent group of people. Um, the Israelis who were exactly. victim and perpetrator at the exactly. same time. They were in that essay, actually. I forgot that example, but yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it's crazy to me that survivors of the Holocaust then do that to people. It's it's awful. Um, well, yeah. what about... Um, and then you also talked about Chinese... So the topic of your piece then, your paper, was Chinese imperialism in Africa? Uh, that that was a different paper. That one was the that one was just an independent study. I did like a fifteen page paper, so I could read three books over the summer and get GI Bill money for it. Sure. Where I completed three bachelor's degrees, um, in four years because uh, yeah, I just like the academics. Um, but the one with neocolonialism in Africa was just. It, I mean, God, I don't remember the specifics of that one. This was like three or four years ago. Oh, okay. Well, because. Let's see. I mean, if I'm way off base here, just let me know. But it mm-hmm. seemed like I, when I did a piece, uh, my China primer for Tim Pool's audience and for libertarians who are going on Tim Pool to talk to him about these China issues he always raises, neo-imperialism always comes up, of course, because of the Belt and Road Initiative. And yeah. I was so confused because there was this example of, I don't know if it was a Financial Times, some kind of some kind of establishment blobby out outlet that came out with the piece saying, you know, China, all that neo-imperialism and, and predatory lending and stuff, that's not actually predatory. And the example they gave was how, um, I can't remember the specific place, but it was... Oh, I see where this is going. You know, this port where, while they have their own agency and it actually wasn't predatory and all these type of things, and I would think that the blob or an establishment outlet would want to play up all these predatory lending, you know, imperialist practices of the Chinese. So what do you think about that? My take on that is that they can't like, okay. So, I mean, oftentimes the media does not care about lying that much, but China is doing predatory lending. Absolutely. Um, but I think the problem is that they're not doing anything that's more predatory than USAID and the IMF. They're doing exactly what they're doing with slight differentiation, but it's, it's not worse. It's the same. They just like, if they, if they condemn China for doing this, I, I, the possible, my possible, maybe this is just a tanky. Maybe there's somebody who like really believes this, but if they're a corporate media person, I would say the motivation would be that like they can't condemn actions that are the foundation of, of U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, that's that makes sense. Yeah, it was in foreign policy. Uh, in foreign policy. Yeah, and um, it was the Sri Lankan case study. Uh, the Hambantota port. They said China did not propose the port. The project was overwhelmingly driven by Sri Lankan actors for their own domestic purposes, with some input from a Chinese SOE acting for commercial reasons. Sri Lanka's debt trap was thus primarily created as a result of domestic policy decisions and facilitated by Western lending and monetary policy and not by the policies of the Chinese government. Um, Yeah, so I can't speak on Sri Lanka, but I can speak on Africa because that's what I I read about for that, which was years ago, and I remember some of the details. Sri Lanka, maybe that was true. Um, It's possible that the Chinese view the Sri Lankans with more respect than they do a lot of the Africans, but Chinese people are very racist, um, and so are Japanese people. Culturally, racism is way more acceptable in everywhere else in the world than it is in the West, and the Chinese people are... They will tell you they are racist, especially in China. It's not its not a faux pas. You're allowed to be racist. They're racist. And um, open racism towards black Africans, as well as like claims of using indigenous labor in skilled positions in, in like lawsuits with the government. But in execution, at least the book that I read, it didn't, it didn't seem like in practice that was actually happening in Africa. It seems like it was a bunch of words. And, and in reality, they do not respect the work that the Africans do. Very racist towards them. Very disrespectful in most cases. And um, a lot of shit. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, I guess furthering that, I totally lost my train of thought here. No, that's <laughs> so, okay. I'm sorry. I did as well. We were talking about uh, neocolonialism in Africa and how China does not really train people there. Oh, I, I know where I was going with this. It was the, the Belt and Road Initiative in terms of... So 
I, I guess the whole Misesian libertarian insight in it is that it's one big government project. I mean, it's a big bubble. I mean, you are building infrastructure that in, in some way could facilitate trade and things like that. But also it's, I, are you familiar with the, the, yeah. Yeah. So, Oh yeah, I'm familiar with it. So th there's a number of things that, um, the belt and road initiative does. I, I, I think that there's a lot of intangibles with it. It's, it's a reimagining of the Silk Road back to former glory. So there's as much of an intangible benefit to the to the nation, like the soul of the nation itself, which is very important to a one party government to have this. So I, th I think that it, it is intangible, but I think there are a lot of economic benefits as well. And I'll get back to that in a second. But the Belt and Road Initiative also allows them to have more control further out of their frontier. So they can go into Xinjiang in their in what the what used to be East Turkestan for a little bit where the Uyghurs live and they can control that area better and they can control trade and influence throughout both the ports of uh, around India in the Indian Ocean and that land route through Central Asia into Europe. And so the economic benefits are obvious with with trade centered through them, but it's also that, yes, China needs to keep their people employed. They have zero percent unemployment. How do they do that? By creating government initiatives, some of which are going to be a good job and have more benefits in the future, some of which are just going to be ammo for the eventual dumpster fire that's going to explode in their face. But um, last thing I wanted to say on that, they are so back to the idea of identity. So there another intangible of this. The Chinese, like in America, some Chinese Americans that are racially, ethnically Chinese just think of themselves as Americans. But in some, not all, varying degrees, I don't know. But in China, they think of Chinese people as under the law of China throughout the entire world, not just in China. The, the U.S. would never, well, they obviously would, but the U.S. would never try to enforce laws overseas they would, of course, but China will do it on it on its own citizens personally. Like they've found in Australia and in the U.S. and all over Europe and Canada, there are like Chinese government buildings acting as fronts for um, these like courts overseas that are dealing with ethnic Chinese, mostly Chinese nationals. But I think they will screw with Chinese Americans as well um, and, and Chinese from other places. But that's how they view their people. That's how they view who they are. And people need to understand that. And the Belt and Road Initiative allows them control in all of these places. It allows them foreign spy control to, to, to get their companies, to get government buildings in there, to be able to hide people that are gaining information. And it also helps them to control their population throughout the entire world. And I think, I think that's important to know, too, is, is just because... We might see it, you know, as Misesian libertarians or, or Rothbardian libertarians as one giant government project that, you know, it suffers from the same malinvestments and the socialist calculation problem, all that good stuff. But that doesn't mean there aren't actual benefits that will be realized from it. I mean, you could you could create, um, you know, ha have all these ridiculous um make work projects be a part of it in the corruption and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. I don't think that that just means you can write it off as a future disaster entirely. You know what I mean? Right. And I'm right. not saying, it, yeah, it's also, there, there's another important thing about Chinese culture is that like the state in China is not the same thing as the state in America. It, it's a different tradition and in Europe, it's a different tradition. So like they 10% of their population is in the party itself and other people work for the party. They are using Western methods in a lot of ways, but they've incorporated this traditional system that they have. They have an incredible bureaucracy, the best bureaucracy ever rivaled only by the other better best bureaucracy, which is the United Kingdom. That's how they were successful. So if they have integrated properly some of these Western ideas of the free market in with their top down, they, like their the communist top down that the communists came up with, the Marxists, that was a completely foreign, brand new idea. The Chinese have incorporated their their past culture as a great bureaucracy and the culture that results from that. And they've 
included that type of top-down, which is a different type of top-down, culturally informed, very important distinction, and then they include these Western methods of the free market, and it's yet to be seen how good their system works. So, so I wouldn't think of it – don't think of it like the Soviet Union. It's different because it's on the foundation of that constructivist Chinese culture. The socialism with Chinese characteristics. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's its own thing. It, it has to be its own thing. It's a, it's a mesh. I think it, Justin Raimondo had a piece about it. I think it's called Why They Hate China, talking about – I mean, for people – to understand that in some ways it is accurate to say that China is more free market than the United States. Like, I mean, he puts, there's no Americans with disabilities act in China, you know, things like that. Um, so yeah, it is, it is very interesting. And it's like, um, I wish that I had the opportunity to, to travel there and really just kind of, I'd be like, it's really interesting. It'd be an opportunity to fly to Xinjiang and see, you know, just to walk around. I wonder if you, I mean, to your knowledge, can you do that as a Westerner who doesn't speak Chinese? I, yeah, you you can. Um, I If I were you, I wouldn't. And I yeah. wouldn't if I were me. I don't, uh, I'm a veteran, so they're already going to suspect me. Sure. I yeah. have been, I, I don't, I've been somewhat critical of China on the internet. I've been positive about China as well, but I think like they will follow you in certain places. If you go to like Beijing and you're like us, they probably don't care. But if you get on somebody's list on an off chance, like some bureaucrat, you'll be in there. And if you're going to Xinjiang, they're going to be watching you. If you're yeah. in those, if you're in Xinjiang or Tibet and you're a foreigner, they're going to be watching you and doing what we do. There's no way you or I, you or I should ever step foot in Xinjiang. Yeah. There's maybe a 20% chance you end up in a Chinese prison, but that's too high. Well, I'm because my parents went there maybe eight years ago it was a it was a while ago but they went there as a part of a tour group and i just can't remember if they said that there was a government ambassador there you know kind of keeping an eye on things sometimes they wouldn't even tell you or you wouldn't really know but up till about four years ago up until the pandemic it was a, it was different i would have said it's probably fine you'd be careful in xinjiang but like eight years ago is very different from today just based yeah. on covid and then the changing in you know, we're less friendly with China now. Right. Yeah. 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 No, yeah, it's... it's an abundance of caution. I mean, check the, the CIA website. I think the CIA puts out like travel advisories on specific places that are, are usually like pretty good. It might be someone else. I mean, you know, don't trust the feds, but in this case, I think they got the right information. Yeah. And I don't know if I'd be, I mean, you, you remember all those stories or if you've ever heard stories of like, I don't know, Westerner goes to Iraq like to to prove to make a point about things. I, I I don't have you ever heard a story like that? It was like Western yeah. traveler goes to Iraq like a free a backpacker or something to prove that something. And then they get like raped and chopped up. Yeah. 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 I mean it's you know, I'm sure that ten times that happens, only like two or three of them are getting killed. But sure, like, yeah, yeah. You know, you can go to Iraq. People have. I mean, there's a bunch of YouTubers that just go to random places like you can go to war zones. You can go to the south side of Chicago if you want. You're probably safer in Baghdad than the south side of Chicago. It just depends on the day, I guess. Um, but it would not just to say that the south side of Chicago is super dangerous. I'm saying that Baghdad's pretty safe. It, it would just be a meme. You know, Patrick McFarlane goes to Xinjiang and ends up in a Chinese prison camp. Like, what, yeah. you know, <laughs> or ends yeah. up in a Chinese jail. I mean, there'd be tons of people spiking the football on that one. So it's like, but it, it the when memes would be amazing though they would be great and and like if i were not in the position of being in a chinese prison i would be joining in on the fun but yeah um i did have a chance when i was studying in germany to to go to moscow and um i didn't because some when i was over there i there was someone else who was going to go with me but i don't speak any russian and even at that time, someone was like, you know, you shouldn't go to Moscow unless you speak Russian. Like, you, you just shouldn't do that. So I did have other people I knew in, in undergrad who were in the Russian program, and they went as a study abroad to, to St. Petersburg or some, to study for months at a time. And They're it was probably fun. learning Russian, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I don't know if it was – I can't remember who had said that, if it was someone who was part of our, like – study abroad program who told me that just hmm. don't remember so i didn't 
Oh, I wonder. That's weird. It probably would have been fine. Yeah. Maybe more difficult. I mean, I did a study abroad in Scotland, and there's no way I could learn to speak like them. Yeah. Um, but I went anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I went. I went to Finland, and and everything was fine there. So. Yeah, but I yeah, mean, yeah. Finland is Finland. It's not Finland's everyone. Friendlier than Russia. Yeah, and everyone in Scandinavia. I mean, they all speak English. Dude, they speak English Better. with American accents. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I, I some like I was talking to people and I, I just uh, I've been to Denmark and Sweden and like I would talk to people and like at first I was like, is this fucking guy American? Like, how are you? How are you you doing that? But I guess they just they're really good at it. Um, yeah, but great. Nice people. Expensive place, though. Yeah, I, I met um, I knew this girl from Northern Ireland when I was in Germany and she didn't have an accent that I picked up on at all. So, it, it, yeah, it was crazy. It was weird. Mm. Yeah, Germans a lot of the times have pretty good American accents as well. Yeah. I, I, Irish generally don't. The Scottish, man, I, I don't know how they speak the same language as us. That is something else. Yeah, I love it. I can't do it, but I wish I could. I wish I yeah. had that that ability. Um, so I, I guess we got about five or ten more minutes here. About ten minutes. W- why don't we talk about anthropology as, as um, a discipline, I suppose, yeah, and that and that's more of what I do. You know, I, I really talked about the anthropology in reference to the China stuff, but most of the time I'm like, you know, I'm like, like I did an episode on what drugs are in different civilizations. Like it was called caffeine and capitalism. Um, you know, right when we started this interview, I was I was smoking tobacco because that's like a you know stimulant. Yeah. Maybe I should have smoked some tobacco today. No, that's all right. What you feel low energy? <laughs> yeah, no. It's I um I had a birthday party yesterday and it was a surprise party and I had no idea. I don't know if it's just a Monday, dude. That's all it yeah. is. No, but um, in so before the interview, I was I was saying too that I did a little bit of anthropology studying. It was like. To me, I was confused because I did have like the basic introduction class, but at the same time, one thing I've I've been fascinated with is like early human remains and like the the link between apes and humans. And yeah. so it was like the same time I was in the cultural anthropology course, it was like we were also doing the thing where it, we had labs where they had casts of the actual remains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Done that as well. Um yeah, so that was like, was that intro to archaeology maybe or archaeological methods or something? I can't remember. It was freshman okay. year. I was or finding like myself. biological anthropology or physical anthropology. Yeah, yeah, biological anthro. Yeah. Yeah, so I've done a little bit of all of it. Um, mostly I've taken cultural anthropology courses for my undergrad degree, but it, it was a good mix because, you know, you have to get, the, if you get a general anthropology degree, you have to get a mix of the four main, I think four main subfields. So there's archaeology, uh, cultural anthropology, physical anthropology, and there's one more, and I should know that. But m- most it's of what not... I do is cultural anthropology. I bring some of the other stuff into it when it's relevant. But I, I mean, I do interdisciplinary social studies, so it's all of it. But it's it, there's so much in it. I mean, it it it's the type of thing that is like can be interdisciplinary with any other field, including other fields outside of social studies because it has implications everywhere. I mean, there's medical anthropology as a field. Um, so like physical anthropology, archeology, span cultural anthropology, these all break down into like more and more things. And, uh, like, uh, in something like medical anthropology, there was a situation in Papua New Guinea where this one tribe had, they had a rare disease. No one else around them had it. And it was only showing up in the women. And the doctors for like a decade couldn't figure this out. And they brought in a medical anthropologist. And the anthropologist found out that these people just hung out with them and studied them for a little while and found out that they were cannibals. But only the women ate the meat. And they were eating the brains and they were contracting a brain-eating prion disease that mimics – it was a degenerating degenerative brain prion that mimicked the uh, deterioration of syphilis. So only the women were dying, and it took a medical anthropologist to figure that out. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, yeah. And so, it, as a part of your study, was it was it you had to go somewhere and live with people and observe them? So you would do that if you were getting a degree in cultural anthropology. Um, 
a PhD in cultural. Oh, God. Okay. So I like, I, you use, so that's field work. That would be participant observation field work. That would be long-term. Oh, not all cultural anthropologists, especially today would do that, but that's the classic image of a cultural anthropologist is somebody going into the Yanomami in the rainforest and studying their like birth patterns and things. And, you know, I've seen many an old documentary of these types of people and it's, it's very romantic, very amazing, very cool. But um, I have done participant op observation with a Buddhist religious group for a few times. Um, and I wrote a paper about that, but that was just for an undergrad class. I've done archaeology, like digging up stuff um, around New England, both with a volunteer organization and a uh, archaeological field school on battlefield archaeology. So these are 17th century wars that I was working on, as well as domestic uh, Paleo-Indian sites, which is about a thousand years ago in the northeastern quadrant. So I, I know a lot of stuff with uh, Algonquin Native Americans, specifically those are the people here, as well as colonial America. And I've also made a, well, carved a 12-foot dugout canoe built to the specifications of a 16th century dated with dendrochronology, which is like studying wood remains between 1540 and 1620. So probably pre-contact Algonquin canoe that was found in Massachusetts. Do you, do you still have that or was it, is it on yes, display? Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, that's pretty yeah. killer. Tweets. The picture of it is pinned to my uh, my Twitter profile. Right oh, it now. is. Okay. Yeah, I just put it up. So you, um, how heavy is it? I mean, can you portage that thing or? Yeah, I mean, it is now because it's been carved down mostly. Oh, it's, yeah. it's the shape of a canoe. I've never taken it out. Um, okay. I kind of like mostly finished it and then let it sit. But it's, uh, yeah, it could it could be carried by two guys. Okay. I yeah. move it with leverage of two by fours mostly by myself. Yeah. I just leverage three or four of them around and just kind of guide it. Well, it's because my family and I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the boundary waters. It's like in Northern Minnesota, um, kind of around the boundary with Canada. There's a, no, but I have, yeah, one of my friends lives up there. One of my close friends. Okay. They probably know about this, it. Like Brady. Yeah. He probably knows. Like it's not Brady, David Brady. No. Oh, okay. Cause no. David lives in, in Minnesota. I, whatever, but okay. No, I don't, I don't know that person at all, actually. No. Well, going up there is it, it's, it's awesome. I mean, I, are you a nature person? I, I kind of assume so maybe. Yeah. But yeah, I actually, I used to live in Minnesota in Woodbury. Oh, you did. Okay. Yeah. All yeah, right. For three years when I was younger. Okay. Well, I went to the U of M in the twin oh, cities. Nice. So, but, but I mean, people, people in Minnesota, they know about the boundary waters. I mean, but, um, yeah, going up there is, is super awesome. And it's like, you feel I just remember like looking at Lewis and Clark type stuff and cut the illustrations of like all these men carrying, going out West and carrying all the gear and these gigantic canoes that they had. It's just crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the Pacific Northwest native Americans, they, uh, they were animistic. Um, and they, they were well, totemistic. They, they built those totems. They were, some of them had slaves. A few different tribes actually practiced slavery. One of the few places in North America that did, pretty much like very common in Central America and South America, but not in North America. And they built dugout canoes out of fucking, uh, excuse me. I'm sorry. I never asked if I could swear. Oh, no on your worries. Show. It's fine. But, um, yeah, dugout canoes out of, uh, what are the, what are those trees called? The, the huge ones. Oh, the, the, the red, is it the redwoods? redwoods? That's Sequoia crazy. trees. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They make dugouts out of those. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Their, their culture is also the root of the word, uh, potluck. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's a redistribution ceremony called a potlatch. In a lot of cultures like that, like chieftain, there's there's some Celts that would have had similar ceremonies. Everybody would get together. The big chieftain's showing off how cool he is at the potlatch. He's giving away all his stuff. And it, it you know, everything would just get redistributed and all the time and different people would give out different stuff. They have these big feasts. People show off how cool they are. Everyone has a good time. Good, just being human. Shit. Now it's a chore. <laughs> yeah. No, the yeah the what the uh, the Americanized version of it is like a chore. Um, Seriously. No, but oh well, I really appreciate you having you on, man. Do you want to remind people where they can find your stuff? 
Yeah, so um, Illegitimate Scholar on any podcasting site, Illegitimate Scholar, Spotify on Apple Podcasts, Ill underscore Scholar on uh, Twitter, and new show with Kyle Matovchik, Biting the Bullet Guys, and uh, Adam Nutter, Luke and Typo on Monday nights, 5 till midnight. First one's in like three hours. I should probably be doing shit for that. Oh, cool. Uh, Okay, so that's a regular thing you guys are doing. Yeah, we're going to be doing it regularly now. It's going to be every Monday, every Monday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. California time. Awesome, man. Yeah, I I love all those people. So I'd uh, encourage people to follow up your links, and uh, I'm sure I'll have you back. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. That was a great conversation.